there. This is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I love to talk to creative people about what they do, how they do it. And today my guest is a returning champion. He's done the podcast before, but he's somebody that really had a big impact on my life. And now he has a new book out, and I want to get the word out about that. And I wanted to talk to him about it because I thought it was so interesting. His name is Brian D. Mahan. He is a somatic experiencing practitioner, and his book is called... I cried all the way to happy hour, what to do when self-help or talk therapy haven't really helped. So it's about the work that he does in somatic experiencing, which is something that I went to him for, and it helped me out uh, a number of years ago. And um, I've been really interested in ever since. And if you're like, what is that? I don't know what that is. Then we talk about it on the podcast. But before we get to the interview, I want to remind you that there are now two ways you can listen to Dennis Anyone. You can listen as you always do through whatever app you use, or you can become a subscriber to DNR Studios. And for $12.95 a month, you get my show uh, 48 hours earlier, and you get a bunch of other fun shows like Derek and Romaine, Perfect Date with my pal Tom Goss, The Focus Group, The Adam Sank Show, and on and on. And you can go to dnrstudios.com to learn about that. And if you subscribe and you say, that does anyone is the show you listen to most i get a little money and there's nothing wrong with that all right also i have a voicemail now so if you want to have a question or an answer uh to a observation deck question or anything about the show you can call us at 1-888-647-9653 and i may play your voicemail on the show all right that's enough of the plugs and the business let's get to the interview here is brian d mayhem Joining me now via Zoom, it's Brian D. Mahan. He is the author of a book called I Cried All the Way to Happy Hour, What to Do When Self-Help or Talk Therapy Haven't Really Helped. He's also a somatic experiencing practitioner, which is how I met him. And now he's here on the podcast. Welcome, Brian. Uh, Thank you, Dennis. It's good to see you again. And you did something that I really kind of admire, and I'm like, oh, he did it. You got the heck out of L.A., well, I got the heck out of the ununited state of America. <laughs> you, oh, you noticed the ununitedness of us? Oh, it's so, we thought it wasn't showing and it's so glaring. Um, where are you coming? I've been thinking about creating an organization on this side of the border to build the wall. There you go. Exactly. So you're in Mexico. <laughs> yeah, I'm in Merida in the Yucatan. What inspired, amazing. what inspired the move? Um, well, um, I had been coming to Mexico for a while. Um, I actually went to Zipolite last or a year ago in November to work on my book, and um, I the, the 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 Wi-Fi went down in the entire town, and I had nine clients booked that day, and I couldn't even get a hold of them to let them know that right. I wasn't going to be showing up. And so the next day, the Wi-Fi came on. I had to move all nine people on top of my already ridiculous clientele, because I see at the time I was seeing 48 clients a week. So I piled all of those on top of the next coming days. And the following day, the Wi-Fi went out again. So I scrambled. I got a hold of a friend of mine as soon as the Wi-Fi came up. And I said, what do I do? He said, go to Oaxaca City. So I went to Oaxaca City for good Wi-Fi, and I met my partner the day I got there. Wow. So it's a love story and a move story. And if, and then if the Wi-Fi had worked, the Wi-Fi had worked properly, you would not have met. Exactly. Where, so, did, where, where did he meet? Um, well, we met online. There it is. I got you. I got you. I love it. Well, I started learning Spanish last year. Um, oh, I have yeah. a tutor on Zoom and I also do Duolingo and it's coming along. So how was your Spanish? You. Horrible. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you need an online, I've been taking, if you, I, I was taking online classes. Yeah, I have a great a tutor. If you need one, so oh, cool. yeah, cool. see, yeah, 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 yeah. The guy in Puerto Vallarta, I was taking twice a week. I was doing all the apps, and then I just started getting under crunch time with the book deadlines yes. and all of that, and so I had to kind of put it on the on the side. But you know, it's funny. As I asked my Spanish teacher once I got here to Merida, I asked my Spanish teacher, "I need to know how to order a margarita." <laughs> just like go up to a bar and order a margarita. Yes. And so he tells me how to order a margarita. And I go up to the bar at this, I was at a private party and, you know, the catered bartender and all that. And I walked with the bartender and in Spanish, I asked him for a bartender. Yeah. And he looked at me and he said, no hablo inglés. 
Wow. So <laughs> he wasn't. Is that bad? It's so bad that it didn't even <laughs> sound like Spanish. That's rough. Um, so you mentioned the, the 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 work you did on your book. What was your goal with the book when you set out to write one? Did you know what your goal was, or were you like, "I'm gonna I'm gonna tell my story. I'm I'm gonna find my way into this." Well, you know, I mean, it wasn't any way, shape, or form to tell my story. The original manuscript that I was writing was just this, you know, huge academic, um, just leaving out no detail, massive book. And then um, along the way, I had to, I, I realized that I needed to, to shave it down, and I wanted to create a primer. I want it to be the first book that some people get a hold of so that they can fast track their process of healing. And I want it to be the same book that people who have already been trying and trying and trying all different kinds of ways to heal and they're just not getting there. So it's that primer. It's a return to basics. And the focus is to just really understand what is trauma, what is shame, and how do our beliefs that we form around these events that are traumatizing and shaming, those beliefs, how do they run the show for the rest of our lives, creating habituations and patterns and reenactments and vicious cycles in our lives? And so um, then in November a year ago, I had this crazy dream, one of those dreams that you wake up at like, you know, 4, 30, 5 o'clock in the morning, and it's that twilight, you're kind of awake, you're kind of dreaming, you're not really sure what time of the day it is and all that. And I had this dream that I was in, like, the, the energetic resonant field surrounding planet Earth, you know, like the ozone layer. Sure. The collective conscious, the collective unconscious, right? We were just hanging out and there. Exactly. And it, it, was, it was conveyed to me in this I am all and I am nothing kind of, you know, energetic resonant field. But I was to help a million people heal from trauma. Right. I read that and in your I book, will. that that's your goal. Yeah, and I woke up from the dream, and I thought, well, that's a fantastic dream, but, you know, if I sell 100 copies of my book, I'll be thrilled. Right. You know, and then three days later, Gabby Bernstein called me and said, I want to I interview you. And, and who is Gabby realized, Bernstein? I've Gabby heard the name. Bernstein, yeah, Oprah called her um, the, uh, uh, a new thought leader. Yeah. Um, and she, you know, she speaks in front of groups of thousands of people. She, her last book, her ninth book, just came out in February called Happy Days. And it's her trauma story. Um, but she has been a spiritual leader, um, you know, just huge audiences, New York Times bestselling books, all of that. And, um, and then... You know, her own personal story, as she tells in her book, um, she, had, she had postpartum depression. And that led her to have to actually look at her trauma, which she had been kind of pushing down, ignoring and denying and, and utilizing all these spiritual principles that she's been teaching, um, you know, like myself. I spent 25 years going to every voodoo witch doctor, kahuna and healer I could find. I'd you know, I licked the toad, I, I drank the jungle goo, I did, you know, everything that I could to try to heal for 25 years, and it just wasn't working for me. Right. You know, and the more vision boards I had on the wall, and the more mantras I repeated, and the more visualizations I, you know, muscled my way through, it made me realize even how much further from all of that I was. Interesting. And then... The shame spiral of what's wrong with me? I'm damaged and broken beyond repair because it's working for everybody else and it's not working for me. Yeah. And so she reached out to you and interviewed you and that, that opened you up to a bigger audience. Well, yeah. And then she introduced me to Maria Menunos and Maria Menunos, you know, interviewed me. Sure. And then Marie, and then, you know, and then, you know, it's just kind of escalated from there. There it is. It's happening. And I have tens and tens of listeners. So, um, but I will say I am one of those people you helped and that's how I came to know you. I was going through a chapter in the last decade where, uh, I was really struggling and it had to do with work and trauma and stress. But when I, I found that when I shifted my thinking from, oh, this is psychological anxiety, depression to, oh, this is trauma. I started getting better. I started finding things like you and other things. Once I shifted that mindset, and so, and I think you write a lot about that in the book. 
we think things are all psychological, but they're actually in our body. Can you talk a little bit about that in a way that's, you know, because a lot of people are probably hearing these ideas for the first time, but that was yeah, a big absolutely. shift for me and it made a huge difference. Yeah. Well, let's put it, let's put it into real simple perspective here. Verbal abuse, right? We think of that as psychological abuse. Right. Because they're words. Right. right? It's and in our head. It's our mind. Meaning. It's our brain. Right. Yeah. And these words have meaning. Right. But here's the reality. Whenever we have a thought, we feel a reaction response to that thought. And therefore it becomes real in the fact that it is a physiological expression. Right. And so verbal abuse is actually physiological abuse because it's how the body's instinctual survival mechanism responds to the potential of the loss of that interpersonal bridge. The idea of rejection or being cast out or neglected or abandoned from a very early experience equates with death, right? Because as children, if we fall out of favor with our primary caretakers, if they reject us, neglect us, cast us out, shun us, you know, then we could die. And so these are very real instinctual responses. And so we look at trauma as being a physiological condition, not a psychological disorder. Right. Right. Yes. And it's interesting since I started exploring this for my own healing, I've noticed it becoming more a part of the dialogue. You hear the word trauma more spoken about. Um, Even just the other night after the Oscars, like I remember Amy Schumer's um, Instagram uh, post was like, it was traumatizing. And I was like, I think that's the right word. Like, I think that's because it, there is a physical thing that happens, right? I don't know if you watch the Oscars, or if you're aware of all of that, that went on in your new wonderful <laughs> I, I life in Mexico. Clip. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> but, I, but you are hearing people talk about trauma and shame I would say in the last ten years more than more than you ever did before, right? I wouldn't even say it would go. It, it goes back ten years, to be honest with you. It's yeah. probably more, you know, five years where it's kind of starting to get to be the zeitgeist. Is probably even the last two or three years, right? You know, Brene Brown brought the word shame into the vernacular, yeah. And until Brene Brown started talking about shame, shame was not even taught. There's no mention of shame in the entire field of psychology. Which blows my mind because it feels like it's so pervasive. It feels, and maybe, I don't know if it's just my way I'm putting that word with a lot of different things, but it does feel like, like the, 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 it was like missing, you know, if they're not talking about that idea at all, they're missing a big thing. Um, a big piece. The biggest right, piece, the, maybe, yeah. I think, I, I, I refer to shame as the original wound. Yeah. Right. It's not like really original sin. We don't come into the world in shame, but we come into the world with the ability to feel shame. And we can feel shame when we're precognitive, preconceptual, preverbal. So before we can think and reason, we can still have the experience of shame. And that's one way that we know that shame is physiological and not psychological, is that we, we can feel it and have a reaction and response to it before we even have the ability to understand what shame is or to understand language in and of itself. Yeah. I think, you know, I I say shame is the original wound because the terror in shame is the loss of the interpersonal bridge, right? We are hardwired as infants with a longing for belonging and therefore a need to please. And we will, we know instinctually that we have to do whatever we need to do to remain in favor. Right. And anytime it feels like we're falling out of favor, it could lead to our death. Right. And so it is the most horrific feeling of all. It's the underpinning of everything, right? So when we look at developmental trauma, shame is the underpinning of all of it. Yeah. And you write that there are two types, toxic shame and another kind that's not as bad. Healthy shame. Healthy shame. Healthy shame. What are the, what's yeah. the difference? Well... Um, you know, we want shame because if we didn't have shame, we'd all be sociopaths and there'd be no rule of law. Right. You need right? people to stay so, in the right lane when they go to the road or whatever yeah, it is. Right. Yeah, yeah. And shame is used to socialize children. Yeah. And so it's ubiquitous, right? Shame is used in every culture since the beginning of time to socialize children. So it is ubiquitous in the human experience. Yeah. Um, and we want to be able to have that North Star. We want to be able to know what's right and wrong, good and bad, correct and incorrect, and what works and doesn't work, and what we like and don't like, and, you know, all of those kinds of things. And that's a healthy shame. Healthy shame helps us to discern 
that when I go into this group, this tribe, that there is something that brings that tribe together and holds that tribe together. And in order for me to fit into that tribe, I need to bring forward those parts of me. Right. And there may be parts of me that I need to hold back. But there may be another tribe where I can bring forward those parts that I held back over there. And I may need to hold back the parts in the new tribe that I brought forth in the other tribe. Right. Right. So that's healthy shame. Healthy shame is really trying to, is really knowing how to um, be a good human being and socially engage and be a part of and belong. Right. And then toxic shame are the ways in which we identify with ourselves as being bad, wrong, you know, I'm a loser. I'm never going to, no one's ever going to love me. Like I'm less than I'm unequal to, I'm undeserving, you know, all of that. So those I statements that identify that there is some, you know, that there's something different or something wrong with you. Right. And that's really the thing about shame in and of itself. We have the experience of shame. Anytime we feel different. Anytime there's a sense of difference, we feel shame. And that doesn't necessarily mean one down. We can also feel shame being one up. How? So um, a number of things. So I grew up in an affluent family. Right. And I had a really good education and I had a great vocabulary and I spoke with great elocution and diction. Right. And when I went to play with the kids in the neighborhood, I consciously dumbed myself down. I chose different vocabulary. I put, you know, I spoke in slang. I changed the way that I spoke. I was trying to fit in. What you were was not okay. Yeah. I was privileged and I was different. Yeah. And then think, you know, and then think about COVID, you know, I mean, I had friends in COVID that lost their executive positions and were driving an Uber. And during COVID, I got ridiculously busy as everybody in the field did, you know, because I mean, everyone, you know, one of the things that I think was wonderful about COVID is that it really brought everybody's stuff up to the surface. And so as a species, we have turned inward in a way in which the species never has before. Yeah. All of our forms of distraction and all the ways that we could self-soothe and self-regulate were taken away. And so we, everybody's stuff came up. And so many people started to lean in and get curious and focus on their wounds and the things that, you know, have been troubling them for so long. And so mental health professionals got ridiculously busy. Yeah. As I did, you know, so I was, I was having, you know, you know, if we're looking at, you know, the idea of an executive driving a, a, an Uber, you know, the financial implications of that. Sure. You you were busy. I was busy. Yeah. You know, and I felt like I couldn't talk about my success with so many people because COVID was such a horrific thing. Right. Right. And so for me to be actually doing. You can be like, I'm booming. <laughs> look at, you know, look at all the stuff I'm ordering. Yeah. No, I get it. Yeah. You can't. Your work has to do with physiology and the body. Exactly. Do you, how important is it to be in the same room with somebody? Do you touch them at times? Is that part of the work sometimes or does it depend? And how is it to do it it remotely? It can be. I've worked remotely for 12 or 13, 14 years. I was one of the first people doing telehealth. Yeah. And I have an international private practice. Um, When face-to-face, you know, so there's a, obviously there's a great deal that can be done working remotely and it's, you know, amazingly effective and people's lives are transforming, even though we're not in the same room. Right. But, you know, there are some advantages when you're face to face, you can apply touch, you know, consensual and permissive touch and all of that. And it could be a way to kind of um, offer support. It could be something as simple as putting your hand on somebody's back while they're crying, you know, so that they feel that contact and connection, but it can also be completely transformative. Somebody has a, you know, a a difficult time with close connection and intimacy, it might be as simple as putting your foot next to the client's foot and let them see what that's like to have that, that, you know, kind of um, safe touch and the reaction that comes up in their bodies. And then they can determine whether or not they like it, they want it, they want you to stop, they want you to move away. You know, so there's a lot of, a lot of renegotiation of finding a sense of safety in interpersonal connection and touch. Interesting. 
Now, coming up, you never thought this would be where you ended up. You were going to be an actor, right? That was your pursuit. And was it hard to leave that behind, acting? Did you feel like, I'm giving up on a dream? What was that transition time like? Well, you know, I had actually given it, was in the process of giving it up, leading up to my car wreck. Um, Because I got to a place in my career, you know, quote-unquote career, where I felt as though nothing in my life was good, nothing in my life was working if I wasn't working. Right. Everything was about the the, yeah. the acting. Yeah. And right. you, you mentioned a car wreck, which you write about in the book, that kind of changed your direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you yeah, were already so, feeling like, okay, maybe maybe this isn't where I need to be. Yeah, but it was more lumped into maybe this life, this world isn't where I need to be. Right. <laughs> so Because I was really kind of just in a place where I was really, really pulling back everywhere. You know, I had, I had read 12 years of journals on a trip to Hawaii, and I discovered that I was writing the same thing over and over and over and over for 12 years. You describe and that so- in the book, and it's like the scene in The Shining where it's like all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Like, you're like, I'm still, that's still my thing I'm saying, right? So you yeah, realized you, yeah. were, you were dealing with the same stuff. Everything that I had been doing, all the pill potions and powders, all the spiritual practices, right. all the prayer, meditation, yoga, everything I was doing, obviously wasn't really making a difference because I was writing about the same stuff over and over. I had my patterns, and I just thought, maybe this is just how I'm hardwired. Yeah. I give up. I quit. So I quit yoga. I quit prayer. I quit meditation. I decided to just quit everything. Did you do something with your vision boards? Did you destroy your vision boards? Because I love, I love a good vision board. I'm into it. <laughs> I just can't. Be, did you burn them? Please tell me you didn't burn them or anything. Maybe just put them under the didn't bed. Burn them, but they went in the bin. Yeah. They went in the bin. Okay. All right. Interesting. Yeah. Probably yeah. recycling. I just went into the. I went into the Buddhist place of chop wood, carry water. I just wanted to be a simple man, you know, a complex man living a simple life. Interesting. Uh, you talk about a car accident that you had that kind of shook everything up, even though you weren't hurt physically very badly, but it just rocked the whole world. And you describe it very vividly. And at one point in the middle of it, while your car's rolling, you think it'll be a relief to be gone. Um, yeah. and, but I think I've thought that before. Like, I, mm-hmm. I think I like a to-do list and I like crossing things off. And in a way, death feels like the ultimate cross-off, right? While I'm not suicidal and I don't have a death wish or anything, but there is something about it that feels yeah, like, I, and that's what you experienced yeah. in the car ride. It was, you know, it's like, it felt like taking off a pair of tight shoes after 12 hours of dancing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was so relieved. You that, could you know, surrender. The word that came out of my ma- yeah, the word that came out of my mouth was, Finally. <laughs> And then I got excited. I was like, cool, I'm going to watch. I get to see what it's like. Yeah, I'm going to find out what the deal you. is. Yeah, I yeah. was really excited about it. And then you and wake then up and you're off that I didn't. You were pissed off that you were still alive. <laughs> you walk away with not very bad injuries. Um, unfortunately, right. your dog that was with you was never the same you write about, which is heartbreaking. Yeah. But then you start really having problems in the wake of the Full car blown accident. blown panic attacks. Yeah, that's like, so scary. You know, days later, I didn't attribute the, I didn't know that there were panic attacks to begin with. I thought I was either going crazy or I'd become possessed. And, you know, I didn't attribute it to the car wreck because I'd walked away from it, you know? And so I was just in the, you know, I was just, you know, laying on the living room floor howling at the moon for days on end, you know, flopping around like a fish on a hot rock. So, you know, I, I didn't know what was going on. And I actually, you know, as I say in the book, I sought out a referral for an exorcist because I thought during the car wreck, something bad must have really happened in that right. place between life and death. Yeah. Something evil attached to me. Yeah. You know, and that's how crazy I was. Well, we've seen the movies. It could happen. It happens in movies all the time. <laughs> it does. So, it does. but somebody said, you don't need an exorcist. You need a trauma specialist. And that's exactly. when you sort of started exploring this world. Did yeah. you get, did it hurt, help you right away when you started? In three sessions, my panic attack stopped. That's unbelievable. What? And I was having like seven to 10 a day. I mean, I was just like, you know, I, I was in the living room with the curtains drawn and the phones off and the doors locked days on end. 
just losing my mind. And in three and in days, three sessions, my panic three sessions. What happened in the sessions? What were they like? You know, I was in such an altered state that I don't have a lot of memory right. about those early, you know, about that experience itself, much less, you know, the, the, the initial healing process. But, you know, all we did was revisit a little moment of the car wreck and then a different moment of the car wreck and then the moment after the car wreck. And then, you know, she took the story out of order and just did little bits and pieces at a time, just enough for me to start to get reactive and responsive. And then she would work with me and my nervous system in such a way that it could unwind and discharge and reorganize. And so it was really profound. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, I continued having sessions, even though, you know, I went because I was having, you know, panic attacks. I didn't know what they were, but you know, that's what that, what that was. But even after the panic attack stopped, I was like, something really extraordinary is happening here. I want to keep going, you know? And then the training happened to be starting two weeks later in Los Angeles after that third session. And I petitioned and got into, got into the training. And so it was, you know, it was definitely a God shot in that moment because, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that that car wreck was the best thing that ever happened to me because it, it, you know, and that car wreck shook loose everything I'd been trying to heal for so many years. And then somatic experiencing enabled me to work through so much of that stuff, even without having to work on so much of that stuff. Right. So like I was working on the car wreck and I noticed my relationships changing. Yeah. And I went to my practitioner. I was like, how is this possible? How are my relationships changing? We haven't even talked about relationships. And she said, you're changing. You're not as thin-skinned. You're not as reactive. You're not as, um, you know, um, people can't push your buttons the way that they used to, right? Your nervous system is settling and reorganizing and coming back to homeostasis or equilibrium, and you're becoming more resilient. And so, of course, your relationships are going to change. You tell a story in the book about when you first started training and noticing these changes, like my voice sounds different, my eyes look different. Like, yeah. what's happening? And I think one of your teachers goes, well, I think it, you're becoming joyful. And you're like, joy? What's that? <laughs> Isn't that a detergent? Never... Right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I've never experienced that before. Yeah. And do you find, you, you, I don't want to give away too many of the great stories in the book, but do you find that once you've started doing this work and thinking these ways, you find more coincidences? You find more, I don't know, for lack of a better word, uh, magic in your life? Absolutely. Absolutely. I just, you know, there's, you know, people talk about a sense of flow. Right. Right. When, when the internal chaos and discord is no longer chaotic and in discordance, then your external environment begins to resonate and you begin to be, you know, I mean, it's like birds of a feather flock together. Right. A lot of people think, but if they change the external environment, they'll feel different. But the reality is, is that if we can change the internal environment, the external environment has to reflect it. Yeah. And so as I have become more centered, grounded, boundaried, embodied, empowered, in the moment, safe and joyful, well, my external world is going to reflect that. That's interesting. Um, you and I have something in common, which is we're both the last kids in our family, right? You're the third. Mm. I'm the sixth. Third. Yeah. But sixth. Do, you, do you think there's anything to birth order? Do you think there's um, – because I do in terms of my story, which is that I was eight years after the clump, and I think that I was an accident, and I think that had – uh, impacted the way my parents related to me, especially my father. And, mm. and so I, I think about that sometimes, but do you think being, being the third son or, or you talk about, you, you didn't get along well with your brothers, but do you think there's anything to right. that idea of being last? You know, I don't know about it being last, about being last being something, you know, I mean, I know that things like, you know, I got away with more or I had more privileges earlier on than my brothers did. Because Which I did too. I came along, you know, my parents were just kind of like, you know, <laughs> it, it was all normalized a little right. bit, you know? Yeah. Um, so, you know, but, you know, I certainly think that there is middle child syndrome 
For sure. That I know, you know, for sure. Yeah. Right? What's it like to see people transform in front of you? Do you see it physically? Do you see it in their countenance? Oh over, my God. Over you time? Know what, you, know what, you know what's crazy is that I will have clients say, I can't believe this, but all of my friends are asking me if I've had work done. <laughs> <laughs> it's so LA. It's so LA. I love it. No, but you, but when you lose your stress face. Right. Yeah. Right? Because we have these holding patterns. Our bodies are in this, you know, conflux of holding patterns and we're holding in all different kinds of areas of our bodies and we're holding in our face as well. Right. Yeah. I mean, you can look at some people and they just look angry. You can look at some people and they just look, you know, anxious and you can look at some people and they just look joyful. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah, absolutely. Our, our face, um, you know, the way the musculature of the face holds is certainly going to shift and change as we release our holding patterns, as we let go of all of those ways that we brace against the world. What's the most fulfilling part about what you do? When are the moments when you're like, yes, this is why I do it? Every single session. Really? Every single session, I see shift. I see the transformation. I see, um, you know, one of the things that I do when I'm working is we start a session and I ask, what do you remember about the last session? And how, if at all, has it played out over time? Because I want the client to track it too, right? And so, but yeah, I see it in every single session. I see people connecting dots. I see um, holding patterns, releasing and letting go, and watching the system reorganize. I watch clients become more vital and vibrant, um, you know, and resilient. And that's really what is most inspirational. That's why I work the way that I do. You know, I mean, 48 clients a week, that's a triple practice, right? Yeah. Well, I'm thinking about what kind of shape I was when I saw you. And if you're seeing eight of me a day or more, how, <laughs> I can't imagine how right. um, exhausting that would be. How do you do it? Um, well, you know, in part, I work in dual awareness. Um, I have to be... Um, I have to be in such a state that my client feels safe. So if I'm merging and enmeshing with them, who's got the tether, right? So I have to be grounded. I said it before, grounded, centered, boundaried, embodied, empowered, in the moment, safe, and joyful. And so if I'm grounded, centered, boundaried, embodied, in the moment, safe, and joyful for six, seven, eight, nine hours a day, I feel better at the end of the day. Really? And I used to say that, you know, the more clients I have in a day, the better I feel at the end of it. Interesting. Um, something that jumped out at me from your book is that you were on Guiding Light, the soap opera, which was the soap opera I watched with my mother when I was in high school, and I loved it very much. Who? What were you? Who were you? Who did you interact oh, I did, with? I did a bunch of... I did, did a bunch of... As the World Turns? I As the World Turns, the same thing. Um, and I can't even remember. There was one, there was one little bit that I did that was... Um, God, what were their names? I can't remember the family. Were you names. with Lou Jack or the Spaldings? Hope Spalding? The Spaldings, yeah. You were yeah, in the, were, the you were part of the Spaldings, Philip Spalding. Yeah, but it was like a that was like a, a Spalding relative that showed up for two or three episodes. Right. You were you were a Spal you may have actually been a Spalding. That's amazing. <laughs> what was your favorite thing of, of of your acting? What was your like favorite memory of acting? Or was like, oh, that was the last thing I did. Which was the last thing I did. I did a I did a little show in San Francisco called the the Glace Bay Miners Museum. Okay, and cool. It's an absolutely brilliant play, um, and an incredible ensemble and a phenomenal director. She also directed a one woman or one woman a one man show that I did one person show that I did. Um, she she directed a one person show and then asked me to do this show in San Francisco, and it was just an extraordinary show, an extraordinary cast, extraordinary experience. And then we swept the Dean Goodman Choice Awards that year. There you go. You swept. Yeah, yeah, we swept. And then that was the last thing I did. So I went out on a high. You went on a high. Are there parallels between what you do now and acting? Does it use any of the similar muscles? Or are they totally different? Ah, That's a really great question. Um, I don't, you know, I mean... I guess in acting, 
you know, after you do your rehearsal and you've learned your lines and all of that, and you get ready to walk on on stage, you let it all go and you just get present. Yeah, you try to be in the moment. Yeah. And so, you know, that's where I live with my clients is, you know, I, I, I want to be as absolutely present in the moment as I can be so that I can attune and join where I can and um, be, you know, and, 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 and hold a space for them to be whoever they are, wherever they are, whatever they're thinking, whatever they're feeling, I have to hold the space for that, you know? And it's like one of the things I'll say, you know, when someone starts crying, because there's a lot of shame around crying. And, you know, and someone cries for the first time, almost exclusively, when I have a client that cries for the first time and I can see that they're kind of, you know, shameful about that, I will look at them and I will say, look, every single one of your tears is welcome here with me. Mm. Every single one. I bet it's a relief. I bet you see people sort of that have this armor up. I'm sure you see armor falling away. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, people are taken aback by that because what happens when we cry? Don't cry. Oh, stop. You're going to make me cry. Yeah. You no. Know? Or we get the messages, boys don't cry. Right. Or, you know, so there's all these beliefs we have around our emotions Yeah. that we need to call into, call into question. Something that I've been thinking about lately, and I just want to bring it up and see if you have any thoughts around it is there was an article in the Washington post a month or so ago, um, about the education gap between gay men and the rest of society. And they talked about the education gap between women and men and that more women are, are finishing college than men. But they said that if gay men were brought into the mix, they're the most educated of all. And if there was, a, wow. if there was an island that was all gay men, it would be the most educated island in the world. And the theories had to do with that best little boy in the world syndrome where we try to overachieve to compensate but the thing that really stayed with me about the article is that it sort of talked about how straight men have all these masculinity tests that they have to constantly pass, that they have mm-hmm. to constantly prove themselves, and they rarely have to do with academics or also following your own bliss. Like, they have to do the thing that they're so busy proving their masculinity that they, mm-hmm. don't, they don't feel free to... to blossom in the way that that feels most true to them and there's certainly there's no cachet put on academics for sure and i remember growing up like all of the kids that were my age all of my peers played little league and Mm -hmm. i i didn't want to play little league and i didn't and i remember it was a bit of a thing but everyone also knew oh that's a sissy kid he's gonna play little league and it Mm -hmm. was not easy being the sissy kid and i did feel that but i was free i got to do my own thing Right? right? And right. reading this article made me feel bad for straight guys that had to like, because <laughs> there were other ones, there were other markers like becoming an Eagle right. Scout and becoming a da da da. And if, if that's right. what you're into, great. But if it's not, it's sad that you felt like you had to. And, and then it sort of ram, has ramifications in your education, in your success, in your financial, you know. I don't know. Right. It, it was, it opened my eyes to something. I don't know if any of this well, resonates you know, to you. I mean- Absolutely, because I think that, you know, if we just look at that from a shame perspective, you know, shame is the idea of fitting in and belonging. being At all costs. At all costs. However, one of the reactions that we have in feeling shame is to withdraw. Yeah. And so as gay people, the you know, the, the sense is, is that you don't fit in and you don't belong and it's not safe and you're going to get hassled. And so... Maybe it's because, you know, maybe they end up with more time on their hands. They're more insular because they're not socially engaging as much. And so they're honing a whole different kind of skill sets, whether it's creative or academic or, you know, whatever that is, right? Because it's, you know, because we have to be much more self-reliant and self-contained because we don't fit in and belong. We need a strategy. We need a fucking strategy. Like one of the quotes that jumped out at me from the article that that you reminded me of is one guy was saying, I can't control whether or not I'm gay or what people think about it, but I can control how much I study for my math test. And, and I was like, Oh, that's interesting. Um, what do you miss most about, uh, the U S 
Saran wrap. Saran wrap. <laughs> really? Should we send uh, you yeah, some? I, uh, <laughs> yeah, because all this, all the plastic wrap here sticks to itself, and you can't get it off the roll. And you know, whatever Saran wrap is done with their technology is just extraordinary. But no, the thing that I miss about the United, what, what I miss about the U.S. is recycling. And I know that those two things don't go together. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> wow, I really miss recycling. Um, how do you feel getting back to the topic of your book? Like you mentioned that, like when you were uh, PTSD came into your story, that your insurance was like no. And like, how do you feel like the medical establishment is dealing with these these issues and and these conditions? Because a lot of times they're like, oh, it's all in your head, which is not the way it is. How is it changing at all? <coughs> Excuse me. I had a client of mine that sat on a plane next to a psychiatrist of some renown who was going to a convention for psychi- you know, for psychiatry, because, and he was talking to her, saying that the, that the field of psychiatry was kind of in a state of flux right now because of all the research that's been done um, because of the the vets and the, you know, the VA and all of that. So there's been an enormous amount of research done on PTSD as of late. And what they're finding is, is that the traditional approaches of psychiatry and psychology are not only ineffective, not helping, but right. they may actually be contraindicated. Meaning making things worse? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. And so, you know, and this psychiatrist said that there really hasn't been an advancement in the field of psychiatry except for the reformulation of a few drugs. Mm. And there has a long time. There hasn't been much going on. Like they're behind the, they're they're behind the curve. So people are kind of having to find their own way with it. Um or you know, through Yeah. Yeah. And then you know, and the somatic work is gaining so it's really in a zeitgeist moment right now. Somatic um approaches to working with trauma. And working with shame, those are the two hot button topics, you know, in the industry, in the mental health field. Um, I've never seen anything like that before. Most of my career, you know, I, I dreaded going to a cocktail party and somebody would ask me what I would do, what I, you know, what I did for a living. Right. Because I knew that the rest of my night was over because they were just going to be throwing a hundred questions at me because people had no idea, you know, and it still strikes me today that there are a lot of psychologists and psychiatrists in the field who don't really have any understanding whatsoever of what working somatically is. Right. You know, and that boggles my mind. But I do think it's much more um, common. You know, I used to have to educate people about it, and now people seek me out. Right. They, so they find you. Really, yeah, something's really changed there. People are looking specifically to work somatically, and people understand trauma now in a different way because you know trauma was only considered ptsd and ptsd only applied to the veterans war right you know, that was the collective conscious you know the the, the um what's, what's the word the not collective conscious but the conventional wisdom you know, the, that was thank you yeah thank you. it sounded it had the same yeah. rhythm that's how i found exactly. you i thought i thought this is there's something going on in my body i need something like that, that'll deal with that um, and that's kind of how I, I came upon you. Um, you, you cite a study in your book that I thought was interesting. Um, Eugene Gendlin study. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, yeah, where yeah. that, that yeah, yeah. said the single biggest indicator of whether somebody can, right. can. So the single most determining factor is whether or not anyone gets better in any practice with any practitioner is whether the client, the patient, is able to feel sensations in their bodies, language those sensations appropriately, and then attach the right affect and meaning. Yeah. So let's break that down. So affect is a shade of an emotion. So we have, you know, primary emotions like anger and fear and sadness, right? And then we have all the affects of those. So anger could be annoyed, frustrated, disappointed. Right. Sad could be forlorn, dismayed, grieving, you know, etc. So an emotion isn't really anything else other than a collection of sensations in the body um, with the conflux of neurochemicals and behavior. So 
the micro movements, gross behaviors. And so when we feel different sensations in our bodies happening all at the same time, and there's a presence of neurochemicals, and our bodies are reacting and responding in ways, our heart rate is changing, our breath is changing, we're sweating, we're trembling, shaking, we're dry heaving, you know, whatever those behaviors are. So when we have that collection of sensations and chemicals and behaviors, our higher brain then interprets it, gives it a word, we're going to call it anxiety, right? And then we have beliefs or meaning placed on what we think anxiety is. Right. And, you know, as an example, anxiety and excitement are nearly identical in their physiological expression. Right. But one's negative and one's positive. And and actually driving someone in, in opposite directions. Yeah. Right? Excitement, we move towards. Anxiety, we move away. And yet they're the same sentient experience. So there's a lot of room for misinterpretation. And, I, you know, and I, you know, some people mistake hunger for thirst and they eat instead of drink. Right. Right? And so this is the foundation of working somatically is we have to build the – I have to help build a client's ability to – feel sensations, to language them appropriately, then to attach the right affect or emotion to them, and then explore what meanings and beliefs do they hold around that, right? Because if that's the single most determining factor is somebody's going to get better, then that's my number one focus because my job is to get my clients to quit seeing, right? So we need to build that foundation pronto, right? That's got to be the main focus, well, I think when I came to see you, there was so much going in my, on in my body, and I, I interpreted it also negatively. What's wrong with me? This is happening. This is happening. And then I sort of came to realize, oh, my body is on my side. It's just been through stuff. Right. It's trying to – so I don't – now when I feel something, I'm just like, oh, that's – I try to be like, <clears throat> oh, that's interesting, instead of like, oh, my gosh, something's wrong. You know, I'm never going to be better. Right. It's, yeah, like it's a whole right. shift. Yeah, the higher brain, our thinker, we have, you know, has words and language and conceptualize and has perspective and judge and compare and contrast and all that. It's rational, linear, logical. Our higher brain thinks if I feel something, something's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And then if I feel something and something's wrong, the higher brain is a problem solver, right? Because it has the ability to conceptualize and put things into perspective and judge and compare and contrast, it's a great problem solver. Right. And so when we feel something, the higher brain goes, uh-oh, you're feeling something, something's wrong. How do I change it? How do I stop it? How do I get out of it? How do I distract myself from it? Yeah. Right? And so it's actually trying to get us away from the very things that we need to put our attention on. Right. If we have a thought come in and nobody knows where thoughts come in from, but every human being on the planet has thoughts come in. So there must be something to that system. (laughs) Right. right? (laughs) Okay. And when we have a thought come in and let's say it doesn't really get our attention and it keeps coming in and then physical sensations start happening, like you start to feel right. You have the, you have this negative thought and you start to feel these negative feelings What's happening there? It's the system, the source, the whatever, trying to get our attention, right? Like you didn't pay attention to the thoughts, and now I'm going to give you this feeling. Are you going to pay attention now? And most people distract, disconnect, abort, run. Right. And instead, if we could just stop and go, wait a second, there's a reason why these thoughts are coming in. There's a reason why these feelings are coming up inside of me. What would happen if I actually turned around and looked at them and listened, right? And and gave them attention and got curious and became willing to feel into that, right? Because our thoughts and our feelings are the sentinels for our healing. They're trying to take us where we need to go. Yeah, but it can be hard to get there. Like, I think the yeah. things that I put together about my life, which I feel are accurate and and have been helped me move through things but they didn't they didn't just pop into my head after like it was a lot of work and it was a process right it was kind of a mess healing trauma is not more walk in the park it's trauma (laughs) right exactly (laughs) um talk to me that's uh, why you need somebody 
to be there with you. Right. And to sort of you help know, you with the tools and on, uh, on the path. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's not the kind of, you know, don't try this at home. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's like jackass, actually. Uh, um, where did the title come from of your book? Okay. So I was working with a client, and it was her second session. She was a woman in politics. So to give you kind of an idea of the yeah. personality structure. And um, at the beginning of the session, like I said earlier, I said, so what do you remember about our first session and how often all this has played out over time? And she kind of like looked at me and squinted and took this deep breath and I swallowed hard. I was like, oh my God, what have I done? What have I said? You know, what, what? And she leans forward and she looks at me square in the eyes and she goes, I don't cry. I'm not a crier. And I left here last week and I had to meet a colleague for cocktails and I cried all the way to happy hour. You know, you really took me there. That felt like a scene out of the Real Housewives moment, maybe the the, the Pot- Potomac. I, uh, yeah, so my acting shots coming in. I know they really are. Like you really created a character. I liked her, her tough her tough edge. Um, yeah. I, that is a pretty good. That is a pretty good title. I cried all the way to Happy yeah. Hour. After we st- after we stopped laughing and yeah. wiped away our tears, I, I looked at her and I said, "Can I have that? I think that's the title of my book." And she was like, "Sure, just give me a percentage." No, she was good with it. But at first, she said that I could use her name, and then she thought um, otherwise eventually. So. There you go. All right. You picked some questions from the observation deck. What movie did you see when you were way too young to see it? My parents took me when I was eight years old to see The Exorcist. What? The? Eight years old? That's eight years crazy. old. crazy. What were they now, thinking? Look, I grew up in the South. Right. Okay, so the Bible Belt, all of that you know, God and devil and fire and brimstone right. was all part of the vernacular in my world, you know, at eight years old. And then we lived in this three-story huge house with an elevator, a coal cellar, an attic, and the lore was that the house was haunted. Right. And they took me to the exorcist. They could not leave me alone in the house until I was 18. Wow. Like, I was a terrified child after that. It was one of the most impactful movies that, absolutely the most impactful movie that I've ever seen in my life. It it just, it it changed me. It changed changed your life. Yeah. Yeah. And I did not see another horror film after that. Like, even if a commercial came on TV, I would cover my ears, close my eyes, and go, blah, 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 until the commercial was over, right? terrified of horror films and then some friends of mine fooled me and got me to go to see the shining and i sat in that theater going oh my god what am i gonna do when i like wet my pants when i shit my pants when I'm, like, right. I'm gonna lose my mind here you know and that one scene where the woman the naked woman comes up out of the tub and yeah. jack nicholson you know embraces her and then she starts to decay the only way I could handle that was through convulsive laughter, and I fell out of my chair and rolled into the aisle laughing. <laughs> At The Shining. I love that they tricked you. Oh, it's a Shining. It's about a shiny penny and some fun people. Then they dance. That's crazy. I still, I still don't like horror films. Yeah. No, I, I was that way with disaster movies. I, the Poseidon Adventure freaked me out so much that if I was in the theater and they showed the trailer for Airport 75, I got up and I'm like, I'm going to go to the concession stand and wait this out. I'm going to wait this out because <laughs> I know it's the same vibe. I know it's the same producers. It's a disaster. It was called self-care. Even then I was doing self-care. <laughs> All right. Here's another question you picked. Any skinny dipping stories? Yeah. So I went to a really progressive boarding school. It was the first co-ed boarding school in 1935. Wow. And we had a nude swimming hole called the Puddle. And it had a floating dock on it. And everyone in that school, the faculty, administration, staff, headmaster, students from ninth grade to 12th grade, all went skinny dipping. And then we had the, the, this cow pasture called Hightower. And by spring and summer, we would all be naked and frolicking out in the field and, you know, throwing blankets and having picnics and all of that. And then in the winter, it was our ski slope. This was in Vermont, I think I read in, in your Vermont, book. Yeah. And you were there for uh, high school. I went, yeah, well, I went for 10th grade. Yeah. And then got suspended somehow 
How'd you get suspended um, from the skinny dipping boarding school? <laughs> I know, right? Um, it's a sordid story, but um, uh, my roommate and I went out, snuck out of the dorms, you know, snuck out after dorms, right? Um, with a bottle of tequila and went and met some other kids, and we got really kind of loaded. And then there was some sexual stuff that happened, and one of the girls, you know, um, cried, you know. Um, you know, uh, complained that there was sexual impropriety. Let's just put it that way. But, um, you know, I was there and I didn't see any or experience any sexual impropriety, but it just kind of got blown out of proportion, I think. And I got suspended and he got expelled and, and my parents didn't let me go back. And you didn't get to go back to the wonderful boarding school. Well, I mean, school. I wouldn't finish the school. I, wouldn't, yeah. well, I finished the year, but I wasn't able to, to, to finish up the rest of my high school there. And I read Instead, in your book... I'm oh, sorry. I read in your book that you wanted to go to boarding school. Like, I, this is what I, I campaigned. I was like, if I don't go to boarding school, your life is going to be hell. Why, why did you want that so much? Because I needed to get the hell out. <laughs> <laughs> I fled the South. Wow. Right? I needed, I knew I needed to get out of the South. I didn't feel comfortable and fit in and belong or safe in my family. Yeah. I knew that there was something so intrinsically different about me that I needed to find a place where I could try to be more of who I was. Yeah. Because I felt like I was just, you know, so micromanaged within the family and then, kind of stunted and in, in the you know in the southern kind of mentality and 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 all of that and so i just i was i just knew i was like this is not the place for me yeah and i need out wow that's pretty that's pretty smart and pretty like well self-aware um here's another question you picked any uh tattoos or scars with stories so i've got a one armband tattoo Nice. And it goes completely all the way around. I didn't skip out like some people do and not do the under inside, which is the worst, you know. But it goes all the way around. It's four and a half hours. Um, they're all symbols that I feel can take me through my life. They aren't markers of a time in my life. So that, you know, so I wanted to make sure that if I'm going to have a tattoo, it's not, you know, a demarcation of a moment, but it's actually symbolism that could that could carry me throughout my entire life. But as I'm having it done, I kept passing out. Wow. And the guy would, you know, kind of like smelling salts and cart me outside. And then once I could, you know, kind of pull myself together, we'd go back in and he'd start the color again. And finally he was like, dude, you know, you can come back and we can do the color later. And I was like, I'm not coming back. This is the only tattoo I'm ever going to have. <laughs> this is the only time I'm ever going to go through this. And so I just muscled through it for four and a half hours. And wow. And you passed out multiple times. Multiple times. Wow. But you did it. And you liked it. And you I rock it. it. There it is. And I rock it. And yeah. And now I'm kind of thinking about having another one. Interesting. I don't have any, but I'm, I'm intrigued by them. I think maybe if I thought I had a really good idea for one, I might explore it. But I do think yeah. the sexiest place is on the inner arm. I find that and very that's sexy. that's the most painful. Oh, the, that's nice to know. The tricep is the most, well, you know, and on bone. Yeah. You know, like hands and feet. And sure. Yeah. But the, yeah, the tricep is really, really painful. I love it. All right. Tell people how they can find your book. Um, BrianDMahanBook.com. Yep. So that's B-R-I-A-N, D is in Douglas, Mahan, M-A-H-A-N, book.com. BrianDMahanBook.com or go to Amazon. It's available on Kindle and paperback. There you go. What was the hardest part about writing it? What were you like, ugh? Five years. Yeah? You've been working on it. Five years, right? Five years I've been working on it. I did the math, and it turns out I'm a really slow writer because that's only one word an hour. <laughs> but you know what? It's a good word. You picked a good word. Um, no, the worst part about it, the worst part about it was the last four or five weeks of going through the final, going through the editing process, and then getting what I thought was the final revised manuscript, and then it went to the interior book designer. Yeah. And then in that process, discovering all these other tiny little things that 
a copyright, a copy editor, a content editor, a proofreader didn't catch. I had proofread that book four or five times, and then it just kept going and going and going. Yeah. And then the interior designer kind of screwed things up, and it was it was a hot mess these last four or five weeks. Oh my god! And I when I was in, I woke up at two o'clock in the morning because I was working with a book designer in a different part of the country, world, and different yeah. time zone, and I did a twenty-hour day. Wow. A box of pizza and, you know, two pots of coffee. And I was 20 hours in desperation trying to get this thing finished. Did you get a margarita and, at the end of it for yourself? Did you go and order a margarita in perfect Spanish? Well, um, I am in Mexico, so yeah. I prefer my I prefer my margaritas with mezcal. Okay, good to know. Good to know. Um, if people are listening to this and they're curious about somatic experiencing and want to want to explore if it's right for them, what would you recommend? How do they sort of start to explore it? Well, I mean, I think there's an enormous amount of content out there. I mean, if they're a reader, there's Dr. Peter Levine. Well, there's my book. Yeah. Uh, there's also Dr. Peter Levine's uh, primer, and that's called Waking the Tiger. Um, Bessel van der Kolk also has a very... Um, well-renowned book called The Body Keeps the Score. Got it. Um, and if you're looking for a practitioner, then I would recommend going to traumahealing.org. That is the website for the Somatic Experiencing International Training Institute. And they have a directory on there, and you can type in your zip code and, you know, all that kind of thing, and then find practitioners near you. Um, and then also, you know, the HIPAA laws have been relaxed quite a bit because of COVID, and so a lot of people are working online now. Um, the only tricky thing is is that if somebody's licensure is in traditional talk therapy, they can't work outside of state lines. And so, you know, that's one one thing that, you know, even though people are working more on telehealth, they're still having to work within state lines. Interesting. And that's why, you know, and, and but I'm not a licensed uh, yeah. talk therapist, and so I have the, the luxury of having an international clientele. There you go. Um, before I let you go, I have one more question. Uh, congrats on the book. You, you pulled it off. You did it. You got, the, you got past the finish line. Um, what is doing this kind of work brought to your life? What has it meant to you? Oh my Lord. That's a whole like series of shows. That's a whole <laughs> series of shows, right? I am, a, you know, I mean, I have to say, you know, pre-car wreck and post-car wreck, I am a completely different human being. I live in my skin in a completely different way. I live in the world in a completely different way. Um, you know, I mean, prior to the car wreck, I never understood what joy was, right? And now to, you know, my, my, my life, my, myself has transformed so much. And consequently, my life has transformed so much that I just live in such extraordinary wonder and gratitude on a daily basis. And inspiration, because I just see people shifting and changing and healing and growing and learning and evolving and transforming every single day of my life. Yeah, it's pretty great. It's pretty great. Uh, well, congrats on the book, and uh, thanks for the conversation. I really enjoyed it. And uh, I think what you do is, well, is wonderful and interesting and kind of fascinating and important. So, uh, Well, thank you so much, Dennis, and thank you so much for having me. Thanks again to Brian D. Mahan. Check out his book, I Cried All the Way to Happy Hour. All right, so this happened. Um, I've been looking forward to seeing the movie The Lost City, starring Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum for several months now. Yes, it's on my dream board. And um, so last Saturday night, I went to see it with uh, my friends Glenn and Rebecca, and I enjoyed the movie. It was It delivered. But here's the thing. The Regal Cinemas in North Hollywood have this thing called 4X, I think it's called. You know how they have like 3D and 2D and Dolby and all this. Oh, so this is called 4X. And the idea is that the chairs sort of shake with the action and with the movie and maybe they blow air on you when they're going through the wind or whatever. Like it has like kind of a sensory component to it. And I'm like, all right, this sounds fun and different. Let's try it. And so, you guys, it was nuts. I thought I was going to get thrown from my chair. It, we, it, it, when these chairs started shaking and, like, it was crazy. I'm like, first of all, somebody's going to get hurt. Like, did we sign a release? I couldn't believe how violent the chairs were and how crazy the interactivity was. And I would just giggle. Like, every time if there was a fight scene or something, I was just giggling. Um, it did not enhance the movie. It kind of took me out of it. 
but it was an experience unto itself. And when Channing Tatum uh, took off his pants and you saw his naked butt, albeit covered with leeches, I did feel a stirring in my loins. And I don't know if that was the 4X chair or just me. Um, it could have been either one. But I enjoyed the movie very much. I will probably see it again um, without being thrown from my chair. Um, but that 4X is no joke. Uh, no joke at all. And um, I really want to see The Lost Daughter in 4X. Um, and hopefully <laughs> I can um, be so annoyed with the children that I get thrown from my chair, just like uh, Olivia Coleman. All right, that's enough for this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to do a virtual game night sometime with me, that's something else I do. Go to youdon'tknowmylife.com. I like to get a, men- a mention in for that every once in a while. I also want to recommend uh, my website, dennisanyone.net. You can... Uh, see all the episodes there and all that stuff uh shout out to aj souza for his uh, mixing and also jb bercy for his technical support appreciate it we'll catch you next time on dennis anyone bye